In his spiritual experiences, Swedenborg learned of all these different kinds of spiritual growth intervention schemes, from re-entering childhood states to sensually immersive hallucinations, the stuff of dreams only real. What does such an intervention look like in the case of a married couple learning the necessary ingredients of a healthy marriage? Here we are inside Off the Left Eye. Stick around for my exclusive interview with Curtis Childs, director of Off the Left Eye, and to hear from Dr. Jonathan Rose, series editor for the New Century edition of the theological works of Emanuel Swedenborg, to learn about Swedenborg's break in his anonymity. And as an extra treat, we're going to 1747 to hear from Emanuel Swedenborg himself. Well, at least the record he left of where he was and what was he up to this week in history. Hey, Curtis. Hello, Chelsea. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here with you inside Off the Left Eye. Yeah, yeah. and so today, this past week, we've been exploring, you know, continuing our exploration of marriage. And Monday's show was specifically about soulmates and how you will find your soulmate after death. And if anyone listening, you haven't watched that episode yet, it's available on YouTube. If you like audio-only things, you can also find it on the Swedenborg and Life podcast channel. Um, and and it's a very fascinating subject to explore because Swedenborg says marriage can continue, does continue after death, but it's not as like straightforward as people might think. You know, there's there's a more to it. You know, even the soulmate story isn't necessarily like, oh, we just found each other, everything was dandy, and we just lived happily ever, you know, forever. And I feel like Swedenborg's yeah. stuff on marriage is this fascinating combination of being really idealistic but not legalistic. He talks about the potential for your with your soulmate, and it gets better and better forever, and you know you're meant to be together. But he's also very. Um, non-rigid in talking about, well, because you get some religious traditions who will then say, like, you, you can't have ever been with anyone else, but he'll talk about, if you're married multiple times, here's what happens, and, and sometimes it takes a while, sometimes people will find, it. it's just this fascinating balance of the two. Yeah, and and something that's true across the board is, like, even if you're in a soulmate relationship, um, it's still, you still have to work on your on your marriage, because... You know, and even soulmates, so Swedenborg even says soulmates after death need to work on their marriage, like need to work on their uh, relationship because there is this connection between the health of a marriage and our own spiritual growth process. It depends on it. that You can't just be in love with someone and stay in love without developing your own love and wisdom, which is, I think, a fascinating twist. And it's a good way that it hooks back into universal application. I mean, one of the things that I love about Swedenborg's, uh, the world Swedenborg lays out is that it's always applicable to everyone everywhere. So if there wasn't this personal growth side of it, if, if having a happy soulmate relationship didn't depend on you regenerating, then it just would be, okay, well, that, that part of the doctrine doesn't apply to me till I'm in a relationship. But really, the thing that makes that relationship go is the internal work that we can be doing anytime. So it's just nice that it's no matter what, there's something we can be doing. Yeah. And like one of the things that we can be doing, all of us, anytime, because we all have this thing called the self that is just inherently interested in 
in itself. And I, one way I was thinking about it is it's like this free radical, you know, that, you know, we, you talk about free radicals in the body that just like whiz around and destroy cells. Like there's this capacity for our selfhood that is interested only in itself to the destruction of what's around it. And, and, and it's good to be clear that the love of self isn't necessarily, um, you know, it's not, we're not condemning what you would call self-care. And really there's something so important about learning how to love ourselves like God loves us. You know, that's really important. But the this thing that we all have that that really can destroy relationships is, one way Swedenborg defines it, is a love for being in control from a sense of self-importance. Yeah, and it's funny how we always have to hedge it because there is this echoing refrain across all of Swedenborg's works is that you know getting getting outside and putting in right order this self-obsessedness that we have is the core of spirituality but then there is this whole wait a second don't, don't you have to love yourself and care about yourself and I will just say as somebody who you know when I was younger and, and getting very depressed and anxious was very much feeling like I just want to feel good about who I am and I want to be loved and all that. Yeah. I, now that I've been immersed in Swedenborg and get what he's really saying, I love it. It's, it's have your cake and eat it too. So I would say, you know, trust the journey there on, on that. When he's saying, you know, he'll come out in places and say like outright love it. Love of self is evil. What he means by that is actually great. <laughs> it's yes. not the self-condemnation and, and guilt. And it's a really help. Dis- it's like a helpful discerning tool between understanding how to love yourself in a healthy way and how to love and the and the sort of drive for, um, you know, self interest or whatever you want to call it. That that really, if you pay attention, it it just has nothing but blame for everybody else. You know, <laughs> like there's just and it's really not. It doesn't even help you love yourself in a good way. You know, it it actually is just nothing but hatred, even to your own self. And yet that's just, it's its inherent nature. And and anyway, the reason why I'm bringing it up is because that is active in all of us. And even in heaven, it continues to be a part of the picture because the Lord wants to bring that into an alignment with higher levels in us. Because when, when divine love and wisdom connect with that selfhood, it becomes the most beautiful thing in the world. You know, it becomes an angel. And that process of learning how to handle this love of self, this like love for control is a big part of of marriage relationships. And Swedenborg has stories where this is happening in marriages as well. And that's one of the things I wanted to touch on today is this fascinating story he gives about um, uh, Dutch wives. <laughs> I just have to hey, say it. <laughs> I want to. I, I thought you might be going to the I Dutch you, wives. I you, you, you At some know. point, we'll have to talk about the Dutch wives. Yeah, and so I, I'll just say I am. I happen to be a Dutch wife. I mean, I'm, I have Dutch heritage, <laughs> and I am married. <laughs> so I feel like I can talk about this. But it's one of those examples where um, Swedenborg pins down like there's this. He, he's describing this. Uh, a city in in heaven or the world of spirits where um, some Dutch people live, you know. So I guess you know if you're, that's your community. Um, and well, can uh, I say that he yeah. he does have this interesting report where you know we're all spirits. It doesn't matter. You're not living in earthly countries anymore. But especially in the early phases of the afterlife. Yes. What's in your mind? really affects what's around you. So people will go on living similar lives to what they had before. And this has the effect of sort of creating 
uh, copies or, or faux versions of the stuff we experience here. Because all these people from a particular region who think in a similar way and love similar things. Um, anyway, we could go on about that, but there are these sort of, at least initially, there are there are groupings and even down to cities that are similar to what you find on Earth. Yeah, because you think about a whole community that share like it doesn't have to do with shared memory you know i don't know but but in any case that's what he says and this is also from um true christianity 805 if you're wanting to look it up yourself but so uh he describes these uh wives and that's not to say that's only something that's an issue for women i mean like the love of control and domination is just true across the board because you're because we're human and um, and it is the love of self Exactly. And so he just happens to have witnessed this one interesting sort of intervention scheme for these people that were caught up in in that sense of wanting um, control. And so in this case, he singles out these Dutch wives who who want complete control over their husbands. And what he says is that they're set up. And this this could be that they're in a what you might call a soulmate relationship. You know, like there's hope for them. But for this process, they're they have to live on one side of the city while the husband and wife lives actually separately. And yes. And so but this is sort of important for them to work through this stuff. And they're able to get together sometimes, but it's sort of done by um, invitation. So they aren't sharing a home right now. But in the meantime, while this is going on. These wives are taken through this process. Um, it's really kind of like the Christmas Carol, where they're taken to homes where married partners live together, where either partner isn't dominating the other. And and they're sort of taken through this tour of like, witness this marriage, you know, see how they interact with each other, see how they do their life. Um, and uh, And they're given to sort of perceive that that the conditions of this, of these sort of um, examples of married partners where they've kind of worked through their stuff over, over control and domination um, are, are living happily and, and that the sort of outer conditions, spiritually speaking, that they're in reflect this inner um, quality. And so they're taken through this process where they learn from witnessing it, from experiencing it. And then, and once they've sort of done that and they really take it to heart, then they move in with their partner and and then it says that the couples are then given a home closer to the center of town and then they're called angels. And yeah. and Swedenborg ends this description by saying the reason for this is that true marriage love is a love that is heavenly in nature. It does not wish for control. Yeah. And he goes so far in other places as to say that love of one partner uh, uh, love in one partner for controlling the other of either gender yeah it destroys marriage love it's just like it's like um the the absolute opposite of it so yeah. it's it's not really this is indictment of the the wives you're talking about it's really looking at okay you guys want to have this marriage and we know what's standing in the way and we have to get that there's probably other things as well but we have yeah. to get that out and I, I it's funny that that you mentioned this story because as I was going on and on about before, uh, how everything in Swedenborg applies to everyone. Mm-hmm, and I, mm-hmm. this is a story that's been useful for me in my spiritual growth. Yourself and as a Dutch wife. Yeah I, I, yeah, I am a Dutch wife at times. And I don't even mean in in my marriage, like, oh, I'm trying yeah. to control things. You always got to watch out for that. But I even think about it 
in the way that this process works. Because it's funny yeah. the way that it's described. They're actually, you'd think it would be this, again, l- really legalistic, like you have violated the principles, you're, you're trying yes. to dominate over another sovereign human being, but it's, it's done really gently so that the actually, you know, these, the, the perpetrators are shown, look how nice these houses are. Look how yeah. nice this life is. Don't you want that? And that's sort of, I'm willing yeah. to work with you and lead you by really superficial things. Don't you think how yes. it would go would be, look at the harm you're causing. Look at how the Lord and the angels don't like this. But it's, yes. it's hey, don't you want a nice house? Because we all want yes. a nice house. <laughs> yes. So I'll often... Look how much what, fun these couples are having. Yeah. Th- don't you want to look good in your Instagram pictures, right? Like yes. that, 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 so... Uh, whenever I feel like I am, I know these spiritual principles and there's an incentive for me to act by one of them that I know is not really truly loving. It's just kind of a halfway measure. But I say to myself, like, well, it's the Dutch wives. Like, it's okay for me to go and do something good for for mediocrely good reasons as a stepping yes. stone to start <laughs> yes. to habituate myself to doing it better and better. So I I, yeah. I really like this for that. I like that idea of the, there's this huge process set up to keep getting us more and more uh, in that direction in our marriage. And it's really the same process we're going through in our life because all of my spiritual growth is to get me to be less and less domineering over everyone I interact with. Exactly. You know? That has good good effects for the marriage too. And I love, I love that like the, it gives a window into how sort of complex or like such variety there must be for the way that like heaven cares about every person and we're going to get the help we need to help uh, be be the best versions of ourselves in the world, whether whether in this life or the next. Because um, nobody's good. Yep. That's the other Swedenborg teaching that sounds harsh, but is really freeing. How good am I? Am I good? Or should I be ashamed? Of, nobody's good. God is good. Yep. And, and, and we're, 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 gonna, we're just we're opening up to grow. that. Yeah. 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 So that's great. Well, that's our extra little insight for this week. Um, and... This next coming week, we are shifting from the subject of marriage uh, in the afterlife after these two amazing episodes we've had. And next, we're going to be shifting to a focus on the Bible and specifically how a strictly literal reading of the Bible actually strips the text of a lot of its power. And so you can join us tomorrow on the YouTube channel for the uh, so youtube.com slash off the left eye um, for our first episode in this next little series it is damaging to take the bible literally hey jonathan welcome hey chelsea good to be with you yeah so here we are again i can't wait to hear more news from uh the excuse my battle imagery, the front lines of the NCE. <laughs> There's got to be better yeah. ways to talk about it. Um, but uh, the exciting uh, crest of the wave of your translation. Um, and so we've been talking about the these 1763s that are coming out very soon. And um, the shorter works of 1763, I guess maybe they're called ultimately. That's right. Um, okay. And, um, and you were telling us how you got to write this the introduction for the book, which in itself is uh, a treasure. And and I've heard, and you were saying how, you know, just doing the research in order to write an introduction for the 1763s has led to some very interesting uh, discoveries for you. And so um, tell us more. 
Thank you. Uh, it was so fun. Uh, the issue that I want to talk about today is the issue of Swedenborg's anonymity, dun, his dun, dun. publishing anonymity. Yeah. When he started doing these theological works in 1749, right. and by doing, I mean publishing, putting before the public, yeah. he did so without his name on the title page. There's no name of the author. There's no name of the publisher. So interesting. And... Uh, he kept publishing until 1771, some 22, 23 years later. And by the end, in 1768 and 69 and 71, he put his name on the title page. So eventually, the he end. made that switch. Yeah. But there's also the question of, okay, just because he's not putting his name on the title page, is it sort of a, a well-known secret like everybody knows. Everybody knows, yeah, right. Or was it really secret secret? Yeah. And uh, so I had always had the thought that um, somehow it was, even in the first draft I wrote of this introduction, I had information, uh, because that was my best understanding at that time, hmm. that Swedenborg, um, part of the problem of writing the 1763s was that unfortunately his anonymity had been broken, but I didn't know how. Hmm. But somehow, but even though he wasn't putting his name on the title page, it had become known uh, somewhere between 1758 and 1763 that he was the author of these books. At least some people knew that. And so I, th I was just presenting that originally as kind of a degree of difficulty thing that that made it more complicated because now people can write you hate mail or accost you in the street or, or whatever. <laughs> yep. But it was so interesting that in the course of doing this research, I found out about letters that a few scholars, I guess, have known about. I didn't know about them before. And uh, I'm not sure anybody had quite seen the import of these letters. Hmm. And they actually show you why exactly when and why he deliberately sacrificed his anonymity. It wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that happened as a result of the Stockholm fire that we talked about last time. Right. Huh. Uh, it was a deliberate campaign, and I had not known this, so I had to completely rewrite my introduction. Uh, yes. But that was fun. So... Um, so he chose it. It wasn't, it wasn't somebody, you know, like the Wizard of Oz, somebody coming up and pulling back the curtain like, aha, you're the one in there. Right. And it wasn't just something sort of, oh, eventually it leaks out and people talk right. and then they find out. It was this deliberate choice. It seems choice. to have been quite deliberate. And hmm. in order to understand it, um, uh, you need to understand where Swedenborg was in the society of his time. The S Sweden today is very egalitarian. You know, mm -hmm. uh, almost above every other country on the face of the earth. Yeah, it's it's, it's very lists. Yeah. gender equality and, um, you know, everybody's valuable and all that. But um, in his day, there was still a nobility and the government had four parts to it. And one part was the House of the Nobility, really the largest and most powerful group, about a thousand nobles uh, who sat in the House of Nobles as heads of their family. And Swedenborg was one of those. Hmm. And uh, there was a much smaller group of the Swedish bishops who sat in the house of the clergy. There was one archbishop and 12 bishops. 
And uh, to understand what he was doing, you need to realize, A, that he was one of those noblemen and he had connections with all these nobility. He knew them very well for a lifetime now, you Hmm. know. And uh, the bishops, he was also very well connected with. Not only was his father one of that dozen bishops in the Hmm. country— uh, the whole time he was growing up, his father passed away in 1735. But he was very close in the introduction. I don't have time to lay it all out here, but in the introduction, I go into all these connections that he had hmm. with those bishops. Like he grew up with these people. <laughs> so he did uh, Secrets of Heaven anonymously and was very careful to preserve his anonymity. You have to remember. This was the state religion in Sweden. And so to oppose the state religion of Lutheranism with what he was saying was basically close to treason. I mean, it was very, very serious deal. Uh, You could theoretically be killed. You could certainly be kicked out of the country or, you know, ostracized, lose your job and so on. So it was a very big deal. And when he started publishing these works, he actually got it set up so he got his publisher to swear to secrecy hmm. and then wouldn't tell his publisher where he was. He had an agent and the publisher was allowed to communicate with the agent and then the agent would know where he was. And so the letters would have to pass through this complex chain to to reach him. Wow. Uh, he seems very concerned about uh, preserving his anonymity. It seems that he felt that Secrets of Heaven was not having the desired effect, like not many copies were selling. Mm -hmm. And he found out later in the spiritual world that there was an English bishop who uh, was alive in this world while Secrets of Heaven was going on and then died while Swedenborg was still here. And Swedenborg was able to talk to him. And in that honest world, the bishop told him, oh, I... I basically blackballed your works. I, I, I made sure nobody would read them. Um, here's how I did it. I used the priests at Oxford and also bishops in the House of Lords. And I, you know, oh my goodness. Um, here's what I said. And I, the whole thing, you know, it was amazing. Whoa. So he was able to find out a few years later why this wasn't working. Huh. So he tried making his works. So the second attempt, so he's trying to engage the British because he believes that they have a freedom of thought, freedom of the press. Right. That's a very hopeful place. There, Britain was a place where new religious movements like the Quakers and others right. could, could grow up quite readily. He could get his stuff published. Doesn't mean he could get people to read it, you know, or not, a, you know, attack it or whatever. But he could get it on the page and get it out there. He could get it on the page and get it out there. And maybe people would read a book that was published in London. They don't know who did it. Yes. It's in this universal language of Latin. So might have been a British person. And right. so then his second attempt is to do these shorter works of 1758, uh, the lead of which was Heaven and Hell, which is his most engaging work ever. You know, So he did yep. these smaller works that were more engaging. Very marketable. That talked about his spiritual experiences, but still did not have his name on the title page. Hmm. And it's interesting that they came out in 1758, and already we know from letters and so on, by 1759, he had decided that his whole British campaign had failed. Hmm. Somehow he saw the writing on the wall. Like this was not working. People were not buying it. They were not talking about it. So he decided to shift, and we found letters, which are amazing. 
And all the information is in that uh, introduction to the um, shorter works of 1763 that's just coming out. Great. That uh, as of February 22nd, 1760, uh, Swedenborg knew that in that following October, there would be a meeting of the government. The, The government didn't meet all the time. Hmm. It met every three years. Oh, wow. And there was a lot of problems going on. And so he knew that there was a scheduled meeting that would start in mid-October. As of February 22nd, nobody, we have a letter, nobody was talking about Swedenborg. Nobody knew his name. Uh, Nobody knew that he was the author of these books. Hmm. By March the 5th, there's a letter that says that thousands of people know that Swedenborg was the author of these books huh. in Sweden. In only a couple of weeks, he managed to get, uh, and so he deliberately sacrificed his and, anonymity because I believe his plan was to bring his books to that meeting of the government called the Diet or the Riksdag, their parliament. Uh-huh. And he wanted to submit his books specifically to the bishops to get their opinion. He just thought if they talk about it, even if they oppose it, it'll create interest. Wow. It'll create awareness. The only price is I'm going to have to sacrifice my anonymity in my homeland here where I'm very well known. No more hiding out. No more letters go from the publisher to the agent and all that stuff. No, I'm going to be out front with this whole thing. And so he and he had a three-pronged approach. Uh, number one, he would tell people about his books and about the theology, like that the last judgment had already taken place, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Number two, that he was having spiritual experiences. And a most essential number three, he would talk to people about other members of the Swedish nobility who had recently died and talked about what they're doing in the other world. Wow. And that seems to be over and over again in letters that we have from that time period. Oh, they talk about his books. They talk about the theology. They talk about the spiritual experiences. Oh, and he was just hanging out with so-and-so in the other world. So in one case, uh, there's much too much to say about this, so I'll try to keep it brief. But um, in one case, there was a Count Karl Diedrich Ehrenpois, who uh, we have from this letter that this— uh, Senator Count Tessin was very uh, interested to have this conversation with Swedenborg, and Swedenborg said that he had been uh, spent the whole day with Count Eilenpois on February 27th in the spiritual world. Hmm. So I looked up, uh, we always in the New Century Edition, we try as much as we can, and we're usually successful to give the birth year and the death year for people so that you get their dates. Right, it's so important. For ID. Yeah purposes, basic scholarship. Yep. So I look up the dates of Karl Diedrich Ehrenpois. Well, it turns out he died in 1760, the very year they were having the conversation. In fact, he died on February 21st, <sighs> and he was conversing with, Swedenborg was conversing with him in the spiritual world on the 27th, and then met with friends on March the 5th to talk. This was someone who just died. Wow. And he does this over and over again with people who had just passed on, with Count Yilenbori, the Queen Ulrika Eleonora, uh, Erland Broman, uh, Karl Horleman, uh, various people in the Swedish nobility that he's telling people how they worked out in the other light. Now, people don't necessarily believe him, 
But it was attention getting. <laughs> and I think that's why in only about two weeks, he got thousands of people talking about this. So that's the story of how he sacrifices anonymity. That is amazing. And uh, ultimately, this approach itself also left a little something to be desired. Hmm. People had a whole lot of conversation, but it still didn't quite get the engagement that he wanted. And his works were not, as far as we can tell, discussed at that next meeting of the government. Hmm. And that's when he brought out the shorter works of 1763 that was sort of plan D or something. Wow. All of this. That is so amazing. Well, this has been a fabulous dip into uh, your mind and discoveries of the research that you're doing. And it really makes me excited to hear more about the 1763s and especially to get my hands on it when it comes out. Um, and to be having in mind this context with the the historical context for this for this book and and where it where it lines up in the timeline of Swedenborg's life and and everything. That's just so fabulous. Thank you so much, Jonathan. You're very welcome. I feel so fortunate to be a part of it all and to have been able to do this research and to publish it. Uh, it's just a joy and a privilege. Wonderful. So now will you stick around for the joy and privilege I have to <laughs> for us to explore where was Swedenborg and what was he up to this week in history? It would only be a further delight. <laughs> all right, here we go. Hey, Curtis and Jonathan. Hello. What's up? Hey there. Hey. So I am excited this week. We are going back in time to see where Swedenborg was and what he was up to. We are going to the year 1747. And again, you know, we've touched on these uh, so far. We've seemed to be focusing on these turning points that are happening in Swedenborg's life. And in 1747, it's another major change in his timeline. This week in 1747, Swedenborg officially left his job at the Board of Mines. Mm. Okay, so 747, here, I'm going to put you on the spot, Curtis. How old is Swedenborg? He's <laughs> Do you remember our uh, equations? 47. No, he's 55. <laughs> is that right? You add 12. 59. 59. <laughs> add 12. Okay, I'll, I'll 12 remember that for next year. episode. Next time, I'll get you then. Okay, so yeah, he is 59. He is pretty much 60 and being like, mm, I'm going to stop this one career I've had and do this other entirely different thing. Working at the Board of Mines, it was a pretty sweet job to have, um, and it took him a little while to actually get it. Uh, he was, he, uh, oh, what is the guy's name? Polhelm, but I'm blanking on his first name. Um, Christopher. Christopher. Christopher Polhelm petitioned the King of Sweden, Charles Twelfth, to grant Swedenborg some position uh, of honor within essentially the Swedish um, government. And so um, he got this appointment from the King of Sweden to work in the Board of Mines, which was uh, under the direct control of the crown and sort of was its own... Um, uh, uh, what do you want to call it? Like it had an administrative, judicial, it ran all of these um, major mining districts in, in Sweden. So a great portion of the wealth in Sweden at the time, and I think still is, is, involves in, is involved in iron mines um, and, uh, and copper mines. And, uh, and so 
that was just like a core part of Sweden's economy. And and so for him to land a job with the Board of Mines, it's kind of like you're you're kind of set for life because you can come in on sort of the ground level as as a um, assessor. And that's where that's what he was. And then you can work your way up. You can become a counselor. And then after a counselor, you can become uh, a president. And there were these groupings of the people on the Board of Mines who served and like uh, managed the four major mining districts in Sweden. And so he worked ultimately for almost 30 years as an assessor in the Board of Mines. And uh, but so he started that job in um, what was it? 1716. But it actually wasn't until 1723 that he like uh, really entered into active service. And Jonathan, do you have do you know anything about that? No, there was something complicated about the Charles XII dying. Right. That uh, the the powers that be after that didn't recognize his appointment. I think he went unsalaried for many years, and 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 then it was writing letters, and he had to it's sort hard of work to interact. For it. Right, right. It's hard to interact with a with a king because you want to be deferential, but you also need to try to assert your case. And so he eventually he was he was very um, determined. And he eventually got in and secured a position that lasted him uh, the the remaining whatever thirty years till the time we're talking about. Yeah, and there, there was a fascinating bit about that because so it was in seventeen twenty three that he officially got the you know after all of this effort for what seven years sort of arguing in his favor of like hey I was given this appointment by the previous king I you know this this is where I want to be working um, that at like the very same time. He got offered a very nice position at as a professor at the uh, university at Uppsala, and and he turned that down because he was like, "Wow, I've been working so hard for this like potential job at the board of mines to actually get a salary, and now they're giving me one." And he chose that over this like very kind of comfy professorship. It's all the more poignant because uh, I think when he was younger. Like some of his heroes were those professors at the university. Right. And when he was younger, he tried to become part of the university and they didn't have a space for him at the time. And so it's one of those mm. deals where it never rains, but it pours. He, he eventually gets offered that, but then there's something else that's more important to him by that point. Yeah. And it gives you a bit of an, a window into his, when he's framing some of the stuff he'll say later, because he'll talk about, we mentioned in one of our previous shows, him saying, it's truly you're working in the spirit of of kindness or charity when there's a position open and somebody else could do a better job and you want them to get the position. So there he is saying, okay, I could go to university, but I don't think I'll do as well. This is some of the, the actual lived experience in him that was informing when he goes and writes the theological works about how you exercise charity through your career. And so the background can give you a little bit of appreciation that he's he worked for seven years to land this job. And now this very year in 1747, it's the first time that he's eligible to fill the next counselorship. Like it's like major time of promotion for his work um, that he for this time, these 25 years that he's been putting in um, for the Board of Mines. And so he ends up having to make another major decision between do I 
take this counselorship promotion or do I say goodbye to it all and really devote myself to the 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 new you know theologically focused and revelatory work that he had even though he was leaving his position on the board of mines the reason he was doing it was for the sake of his country that's what he said to the king and i think there was some truth to that yeah it's amazing that he um makes this application to the king to retire because again it's like he can't just choose like oh, i'm going to leave the job he needs to get you know permission um by the king and he uh, acknowledges, like, I've just been, you know, my name's been submitted for this, the vacant office, you know, to become a counselor. And he says, but I f- as I find myself in duty bound to complete a work which I have commenced, therefore it is my humble request that your royal majesty be pleased to consider some other person for the position and in grace free me from service. And so he gets this amazing response from the king. And that's in June of that year. And he says... The king is writing, although we would indeed willingly see that uh, he, Swedenborg, continues to perform the faithful service here in the kingdom, which he has steadily given us and the fatherland. Um, you know, his request is willingly granted since we are fully assured that the aforesaid work, which he has in hand, will in time benefit the public. He gets his permission to go and, you know, the king and his colleagues are like, all right, you're going to. We know whatever you've got next for you is going to end end up benefiting everybody anyway. <laughs> and what he did in his 60s and 70s is what he's really known for now. You know, a much smaller group knows the mineralogical and philosophical works that he wrote before that. Oh, it's so fascinating. And it's it was something interesting, too, that is also very just like, you know, the normal day-to-day life of Swedenborg is that... Um, he gets that message from the king on June 12th, but uh, his colleagues are like, you can't just leave right now. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. Can you just hang on for another month, um, you know, to sort of clear up the the cases and issues that he had been involved in at the time. And so his final departure isn't until the next month in July, where we are now. And uh, and then he takes leave of his colleagues and... Um, you know, they wish him well, and and then it's on the 24th of July that he, he you know, closes all the loops, and, and he actually leaves Sweden and goes to Holland. And the rest is obvious what happened after that. No. <laughs> Thanks, Curtis and Jonathan, for hanging out and discussing where Swedenborg was and what he was up to this week in history. Wouldn't miss it. Very interesting. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Inside Off the Left Eye. You can subscribe to Inside Off the Left Eye to get our weekly insider podcast. And if audio is your thing, subscribe to Swedenborg and Life to hear our entire weekly lineup of video programs in their audio-only form. If you prefer video, subscribe to the Off the Left Eye YouTube channel. And you can explore all our content and resources at our website, offtheleftye.com. And to become part of the core group of people who sustain what we do here at Off the Left Eye, Go to otle.cosvox.com to support our work with a donation. Can't spare the cash? It's like showering us in gold and diamonds to rate us on iTunes and leave a review. But you know what? Just having you there listening is a real form of support in itself. So I mean it when I say thank you for listening. I'm Chelsea Odner, and we'll be here with you next week inside Off the Left Eye. (laughs) 